0: One of the main themes and messages of this podcast has always been that success can mean different things to different people. And how someone gets there, if they get there, seems to take a different path each time. Today's episode is with someone that I had the privilege of working with in the musical adaptation of First Wives Club back in 2015 in Chicago. We were gearing up for a hopeful Broadway transfer that unfortunately never happened. But Carmen Cusack gave a memorable performance in that show and went on to star in her Broadway debut of Bright Star and most recently, Flying Over Sunset. Her journey to Broadway has been a unique one, from Denver and Texas to London and Shanghai. And all the while, she just wanted to be in an intimate jazz lounge singing the standards of Sarah Vaughan and Ella Fitzgerald. But as you'll hear in her three stories, That bumpy road to success is as much a personal journey as it is a professional one.
1: When I started, I was already burnt, but I was not a fan of musical theater. Um, It's something that I landed into because I wanted to sing and I also wanted to act. I didn't own a musical album until I had to audition for something.
0: Welcome and thank you for joining me for another episode of Why I'll Never Make It, a top 25 theater podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Oliver Jones, an actor and singer talking with fellow creatives each week as they bring us three stories from their own life of personal struggles and professional hardships with lessons we can all learn from. The website is com, where you can sign up for the Win Me newsletter, and offer generous support of this podcast. Again, that's why I'll never make it dot com. Well, Carmen, it is a joy to be with you, to be in your home.
1: Yes, welcome to the chaos.
0: (laughs) I know. You were telling me you've only been here about a year, but you're still kind of working, trying to make it a home.
1: Well, I'm embarrassed to say it's a little bit over a year. We closed December 14th, 2020, which, God, I have no idea how that actually happened during COVID, but it did. And it was a long, crazy, crazy process of trying to buy a home during the pandemic. Oh my gosh. What a stupid idea. Um but we and I we gave up at one point and then this came back on the listings and I was like, let's just just let's go look at it and we're just going to do asking price and we're not going to get into bidding, into a bidding war because we've been through every bought that t-shirt and and I don't want to I bought sweets from that shop not doing that again. Um because we're actors and we're unstable. And this is a pandemic and nobody knew what was the hell was happening. So um, it just seemed crazy at the time. And I just said, we're going to go in the listing price. We're going to, and if that's, and if they take it, then okay. So we closed 14th of December and moved in the 23rd of December of 2020. Then I've been away half the time because luckily things started, you know, happening again. And my husband went back to work, but he works at Burbank Studios. He's got a bit of a more stable, I I should say, touch wood when I say stable. (laughs) Because anything can happen. But so I get to just, at the moment, do these gigs that don't, you know, just be creative and do gigs that I enjoy and not necessarily the ones that that pay all that big money.
0: Well, I think that's what's interesting because you've you've been on Broadway, you've performed in New York, yet you live in LA and and I think most people just assume, well, if you're on Broadway, you obviously live, you breathe New York, but yet you are not a New Yorker. And so how do you balance that kind of travel and and do you just go to New York only for certain projects or are you kind of open to traveling whenever wherever
1: I go wherever the work is that I feel at home at you know you're you're it's where I lay my hat my home is where I lay my hat and and but as, as long as my husband can be with me for 70 80% of the time then I'm, I'm happy I'm so happy So he travels camper. with you as much he, as possible c- We kind of travel with each other as much as we possibly can and luckily he's an actor so you know he gets he works 3 three weeks out of the month and and so it's been it's worked out for us we've been very lucky in being able to stay you know to stay connected um you know even though we have sometimes have to be apart
0: well that's i think that's the thing with any actor balancing the personal life the relationships with the career and it's going to be a different path it's going to be a different puzzle piece to put together for every actor
1: And every gig.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And each gig, because depending on if it's in Carolina or if it's in back in your hometown of Denver or it's in New York or London, you know, it's all going to be a different path to get there.
1: Yeah. And luckily, both of us enjoy traveling and enjoy experiencing different, you know, atmospheres and climates. And so we both we enjoy it for the most part, <laughs> until we don't, and then we want to come home. And, and luckily, you know, finally we have a home to come to, which is nice.
0: <laughs> that idea of enjoying it, sometimes not enjoying it actually leads us into the first story that you wanted to share. And this was a time when you were in London, you had done the West End. you had been done the big shows, Phantom, Les Mis, you, you were on top of the world when it comes to like, you know, musical theater. And yet you were burned out. Mm-hmm. You were, you were ready to be done with it and you just wanted to be a jazz singer. Yes. You left theater. Well, what was it that burned you out?
1: I guess when I started I was already burnt but I was not a fan of musical theater. Um it's something that I landed into because I wanted to sing and I also wanted to act. And it seemed like I mean that
0: is musical theater. I so guess it well, is. Why don't I you know, like it? But I
1: knew I could do both. So I was like you know, I I, fe- I felt like I was going to bite off more than I could possibly chew. To just say, I'll just be a you know go into the movies or get a TV show, um, or just be a recording artist. It seemed like dipping the toe in and trying myself, you know, challenge myself in both areas it seemed like the easiest gig to get at the time and you know i was young and i could it, they were gettable were the roles in musical theater even though i i can't say that i i didn't own a musical album until i had to audition for something and i had to go and buy the album so that i could learn all the music <laughs> from it and some of it I was like, oh, God, fast forward, fast forward, don't like that, don't like that. Oh, now I have to sing this song. Okay, I guess I can do it. I think I can do it eight times a week. And then you just you just continue to do things that you don't actually love, like singing the same songs that you would never listen to, you know, if you were sat at home or cleaning the house or doing whatever. A re- and yet I was finding myself doing it eight times a week and thinking, what am I doing?
0: So is this a version – did you find that in Phantom and Les Mis? I mean, these are like the pinnacles sure. of, of a lot of people's like bucket lists.
1: I know. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Some of the songs I could I could just about stomach eight times a week. But others were just like I put my ear heads on and just, you know, backstage and, oh, God, this again. <laughs> just you know turned hysterical. down the tanoid, hope I didn't miss my my entrance or my cue. luckily, you know i i i I wasn't fired for anything and and I managed to get make all my my cues, even though I half the time i couldn't listen to it all eight times a week and then I just thought, why am I doing this to myself? I really want to sing jazz, but there's no money in jazz. But I just thought, you know, there's not – in England, there's no money in in theater anyway, so why not?
0: But even in these big shows, I mean, were you still not making quote-unquote good money? it was
1: shocking to me. At one point, it really dawned on me um, the truth uh, because they do hide the truth from you. When you're there and surrounded by other actors that are just making the same amount of money and you just kind of make it work and you're always, you know, in debt and – And it's just, that's what you do. Everybody's just always in debt. And I guess that's the life that we've decided to live. And then one time I got asked to go um, merge with the American company of Les Mis. Cameron McIntosh wanted to do this experiment where he took some parts of the West End, merged it with an American cast, and then took a West End show to Shanghai. And see how we developed within that culture, and how they developed with this, you know, this this Western show, and BBC documented it, and it was just a real really cool thing to do. It so I remember one time going out with the American cast and having a beer, and one of the guys just cheekily enough asked me, "So what are you making on this?" And I was playing Fontaine along with Combe Wilkinson and he was one of the ensemble guys and i thought well i'm making all, i'm doing all right because i was in the middle of a contract as fontaine in le mes in the west end when um Cameron McIntosh found, you know, at the last minute, he needed someone that, that could work in America. He didn't have to go through the green card process because the girl that was actually supposed to do it uh, burst her appendix at the last minute. So he needed somebody wow. that knew the role and that could step and, and work in America immediately. And so we had, we got to negotiate renegotiate the sums. And I was quite happy with what I was getting. So I was like, yeah, I think actors should talk about this. So this is what I'm getting. And he'd taken a swig of beer and it, and then he, it literally like spewed out of him in, and I was like, yeah, I know it's a lot, isn't it? And he said, that's our base sum. That's what we were getting three years ago for an ensemble And I was playing the lead, you know, one of the lead roles. And that's when it really dawned on me. So then
0: did it turn out he was making more than Oh, yeah, he was
1: making more. He was making probably three times more. And that's when it really dawned on me that I need to get my butt back to America and make some money (laughs) at this
0: so was all this kind of what led into you being burned out of musical theater and just yeah, wanting just to get that into jazz? They were jazz? taking the
1: piss. They were taking the piss out of us, you know. And you know, we were paupers, literally. You know, like in old England times, just felt like I was a pauper, um, working my butt off and still not being able to pay my bills. I was I was tired of that.
0: But as you said, there's not much money in jazz. So why did you think it was going to be better? At
1: least I would enjoy doing the music.
0: Oh, okay. all right. (laughs) At
1: least all the songs I was going to sing and I wasn't having to do it eight times a week. I was going to have more fun doing it. I love working with other actors and I love the liveness of it all. You know, there was so many factors which kept me involved and kept me doing it eight times a week. But then I just thought, I just want to break. I just want to see what else is out there. So that's what I did.
0: Now, what's interesting about jazz music is that most of it comes from musical theater. So you're still having to do musical theater (laughs) as jazz standards.
1: But that's what's so funny. But the the great thing about jazz is you get to have fun with it um, because you get to play around with the melodies and you get to do your own acrobats and still tell a story, but not necessarily with lyrics. Tell a story through the the choices of the notes that you decide to hit in this, the, the riffing that you decide to do. That's the story in itself. And that's, I love the freedom of that.
0: Now, are there jazz singers that you get inspired from or that you either emulate or, or wanted to be like that motivate I, you as a singer? Well,
1: I was inspired by all the greats, you know, Sarah Vaughn, Billie Holiday, and even Ava Cassidy. I don't know if anybody knows, you're familiar with Eva Cassidy. Uh, as soon as I heard her voice, I was like, well, that's, Something that I, I feel like that was, that's the way I would phrase that. Before I even heard her, I would have done it that way. The way she approached the phrases were very much similar to what I would do. And, and then, you know, then I found out she had died very young and tragic, but I just loved listening to her. Uh, like saxophonists and and musicians inspired me in the jazz realm, rather not just singers.
0: Well, that's certainly one thing that I learned whenever I was first getting into jazz music and that kind of uh, freedom, as you say, is that jazz singers oftentimes will approach the song as an instrumentalist. Absolutely. Like, how would the trumpet approach this versus the trombone versus a saxophone, and use our voices in the same way that those instrumentalists exactly? Because each
1: instrument is telling you a different story. Well, for me, it is. It's like colors. When I hear music sometimes I, I feel colors and I see colors and and it's just all those beautiful connections just really inspire me. And that's why I was like, I don't care if I make nothing at this. I just need a break and I wanna do this right now.
0: So then as you're this jazz singer now, you've you've put aside musical theater. Did you feel like, okay, now I'm where I should be? This is what I should be doing.
1: It was funny how it all came about because it was on I when I decided this was the day I was going to start do, singing jazz. It was literally New Year's Eve, and we were—I was hanging out with some some mates at the pub, and we all kind of went around the circle. You know, what's your New Year's resolutions? And and when it came to me, I was like, I want to sing jazz, and I want to sing at Ronnie Scott's, and I want to sing at Pizza Express, and just hit all those you know those cool venues in London that I wanted to sing at, because I had started gigging. I would do. Les Mis, and then I'd run over on every Thursday night to do this gig called the Kitsch Lounge Riot. And I would do like Dusty Springfield and just all this kind of cool 60s stuff and Dionne Warwick, And it was this really cool band. And I just loved hanging out with the band and musicians and communicating music live in the moment and creating something together in, a, in the liveness of it all. That's what got me interested in thinking, I can do this. I want to do gigs. I just want to do gigs. And the the phone rang about 10 minutes later after I had said that. And it was a guy called Leo Green. He was a saxophonist that was getting a band together. And he was a son of a famous journalist slash DJ. You know, it was New Year's Eve. And so he had this big gig to do and the singer didn't show up. And he said, but I got your number off of another mate. What's your list of songs? I was like, well, you know, basically all the jazz standards and then some. And he said, we'll work it out. Can you get here in, in, at so and such time? And I was, you know, hanging out with my mates at the pub. And I was like, in so and such, in half an hour? Okay. So I thought, guys, I think this might be, I gotta, I gotta do this, you know? And after that gig, it went really well. And, uh, he said, do you want to, he just basically hired me on the spot and they had a tour, you know, of just all the venues that I wanted to play.
0: That's that's wild. So you were finally in your own mind, in your own heart, you were now home as far as the the kind of senior. Singer- Musically.
1: Yeah. I was like, I was happy. I was so happy. But then, then you realize, oh, but I need to pay my bills too. <laughs> so,
0: yeah, so so it still comes back to money, but at least your soul was being fed. Yeah, it was a it lot was, better. I enjoyed it. So, did you see this break from musical theater as something more permanent, or really just something temporary? Let me get this out of my system, and I'll come back to it.
1: I've never. I don't make permanent. Des- I, nothing's really permanent for me. I just. I just have to go with where I'm at in this moment. This is, I'm feeling dead. It's not giving me joy anymore. So I got to find something else. So I never stay too long in something if it's not giving me joy. So I, I never said, oh, well, this is going to be it. Because there were things about theater always that will give me joy. Then when I've given it a break, I'll come back to it and I'll come back with it with fresh eyes and a fresh feeling and a fresh body and just ready to, to take that again.
0: As you said that, that correlated to me with our own personal lives and relationships as well, that we tend to go where the joy is. And there's this stereotype of, of actors and performers being, you know, bouncing around for this relationship that when have you found a bit more stability in your personal life, but still maintain that freedom in your artistic life?
1: Well, when I decided I was gonna do some jazz, I wasn't, I think I was single at that point. Um I was enjoying my singledom. And, um, and just, you know, taking things that opportunities that came along. Um, I was never one of these gals that just would hop into bed with anybody. And I, you know, you'd have to really gain my trust and that would take time, a lot of time. So I didn't really, I just kind of dated a little bit here and there, but, uh, didn't really have a full on relationship until my second husband, till my present husband that I'm with now and we we're just looking at it we've been together now 19 years which is crazy but yeah at the time when i started doing the you know the jazz i had i just started dating him i think so he was there he was supportive but i will say i think it does help to have to have some stability in some part of your life so that you can just kind of bounce about and play with other parts of your life well that was for me
0: Well, yeah, I do think that there's a correlation where we need to have that personal stability so that our artistic being can then be free to go in any direction.
1: Yeah, and he has been a rock. My husband has been my stable rock, whether it's emotionally or financially. You know, we both had our ups and downs with the finances, but, but we've been each other's rocks throughout all that, which is very, I feel very, very lucky, very blessed.
0: Well, that leads us into the second story that you wanted to share. And this one had to do with the musical Sunday in the Park with George. <laughs> You've had a very tumultuous relationship with this musical. Yeah. And it began with you auditioning for it and not getting it. And so you were like, never again.
1: Well, I- <laughs> that's actually, I you, you're nearly right there. I never got seen for it. I couldn't get in the door to oh, be seen. Oh, you never even auditioned. I never got to, I never got to audition for it. Um, so that just put a bee in my bonnet about the whole project. So I never looked at the show. I never saw the show, never showed any interest in, in, except for the, the odd songs that I thought were really fun and beautiful, like move on, um, that I would do in concert work. You know, there were songs from it that I had to learn to, for concert cabaret stuff that I was doing in London. Um, but overall I never saw the show, didn't really know what it was about. Until I had to, well, until I actually then did get an audition for it when I had finally come back to America for Chicago Shakespeare.
0: So, what exactly led you to audition for it again, even though you had you had kind of written it off? Well,
1: because that time had passed, and I, you know, I, I was okay about it at this point. And I, after doing so many, learning so many songtime songs, and realizing he's a writer for actors, he is a lyricist composer for actors, and. I have to do one of, one of his shows at some point in my life. And then I, I circled back to, you know, I got this opportunity and was like, well, okay, it's I'm destined to play this role. And so it luckily it, it did come, it did happen. But then of course I didn't know anything about the show and showed up the first day of rehearsal, uh, not off book, like everyone else in the room was, which I thought was rude.
0: <laughs> How dare they? How, How dare, dare they be prepared? jerks.
1: Um so yeah, it really kind of put me on the on the the back foot and the director was like, "Who is this person that's playing Dot Marie?" Uh and so there was a lot of skepticism and I'm not used to having skepticism with my director and because I I'm my own skeptic. <laughs> I'm already the person that says you can't do this.
0: You must have just felt like behind the eight ball from the go. Sure, yeah, sure. we
1: At one point I was wearing a t-shirt uh, one day and I was singing Trickle of Sweat, the back of the head. You know, i have done this. Another book. Well, and, and luckily I was wearing a bra at the time. So, um <laughs> but he decided I was not hitting some moment for him. So he got a spray bottle and decided to start spraying me while I was singing the friggin' song. And 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 at the time I thought, okay, maybe that I, I was open to it. Okay, hit me. Hit, you know, hit me again. Hit and I just I kind of enjoyed, I guess I enjoyed the, the the spontaneity of that and thinking, oh, okay, maybe this, and I'll grab something from this and that'll be what he needs. Uh, I was open to it. But then of course, apparently the rest of the cast were just mortified that he'd done this. And they were all asked to leave and go do some music work. Then later on that day, we came back to it and one of the girls was like, I can't believe he did that to you. I can't believe. It. And he, she was telling all, all the cast. and And I was like... Oh, should I have been angry about that? (laughs) Maybe I should have. Oh, okay. I just felt, you know, mad at myself that I wasn't bringing what I needed to bring, and that that he had to go to that extent. But they were angry on my behalf. And
0: so, once she brought it up, did it then make you start to be angry at that? Or yeah, then I realized
1: how. Then I thought, well, yeah, that was pretty. That was pretty awful that he did. I guess it was pretty awful that he did that.
0: I mean, because we spray cats when they misbehave, you know. So.
1: (laughs) But I see. I'm just so I, I, whatever gets the job done, uh, and and yet he they were kind of right. I mean that was kind of not cool to do that to me. Um, and then I did that. Was like, I was like gosh, yeah, that was really awful. But it still made me think. But how awful he had to do that. He felt the need to do that because I wasn't, I clearly wasn't doing something for him. I don't know. Maybe deep down, we all want to be spanked and and harassed (laughs) to some degree.
0: (laughs) Yeah. It's that some attention is better than no attention. Right. (laughs) Yeah. But did you feel that this being behind, was it just, okay, well, I just didn't prepare, but I'm still good. I'm still ready for this role. Or did it make you doubt your own ability to do the role? Well,
1: I was doubting my voice at the time because I think my voice was going through a slight change. And I was doubting my artistry all together, all because, and probably a lot of it had to do with that. And I didn't even, I wasn't, I was blaming myself rather than him. I was like, oh God, you're, you're just awful. Carmen, how did you, you fooled them until now. They're not fooled anymore. So what are you gonna do now? And I was questioning my artistry, my vo- my voice, what the hell I was doing. And then all of a sudden, I realized, oh, wait, this story is about questioning our artistry. (laughs) Duh. (laughs) Poor George. Life imitates art. I know. Then I just thought, oh, this is hilarious. I've been sitting here taking up smoking and crying at the end of every rehearsal. Um, And maybe that's probably why my voice was giving me jip, because I I decided to take up smoking, (laughs) because I just was a nervous wreck. And then I thought, no, you know how to do this. Trust yourself. Just because you came in not knowing every single word of every single lyric and every, and all the book, um, you've been doing this for a while now, Carmen. Don't let these other jerks tell you otherwise. Trust your instincts and embrace the fact that you're questioning what you're doing as well. Because as an artist, that on- is only going to make you better sometimes. I mean, not always, but it can really help you to adjust and try something from a different angle. You know, I've always questioned, I've never gone about something with 100% confidence. And I think that's what's helped me get the jobs because for the most part, because if you go in already deciding what you're going to do then you're not keep you're not leaving yourself open for what the director wants to try and what the other actors in the room need to, you're not allowing yourself to be open to the moment and that's that can be very harmful to your craft
0: yeah cuz i don't know if if you found this to be true but i know that the auditions that i went in and was so confident and like this role is mine i know it i you know and i just nailed it those are the ones, I rarely get those.
1: Isn't that interesting? Right. And, and pe- everyone connects to vulnerability. And especially when you're trying to form something and mold something that's not 100% developed. Nothing is 100% developed. And to go into it saying, I'm making some choices and I'm bringing my own experiences and my own damage and my own pain to this. And everyone can connect to damage and pain. And I think that's where people get excited to see something, you know, in a moment, in a live scenario, when you go up on a line and you're like, it's those magic moments and, and no one can, it's indescribable, those moments. And all of a sudden everyone's like, oh, there, there it is. There's that real moment. And you have to try and capture that at all times. And that's vulnerability mixed with experience and craft but not knowing we're just, we're here for this moment and who knows what the next moment's going to bring.
0: I think that goes back to what you were talking about in your first story about jazz and the freedom and the way that in the moment you go a different way with this note, or you maybe, you know, kind of paraphrase a certain lyric so that it means a little something different or means something more. It sounds like that that process of the musical theater is what you really crave. That Yeah, um, that- and
1: sometimes it doesn't go in the great place because if you're with, like in a jazz moment, a musician, you'll think, okay, I'm going to do this. And if this guy goes here, then it will be magic. It'll be like an orgasm. But then if he goes this way, oh, no, it could be catastrophic. But either way, we tried something. And it's always worth it in the end when when, it, when you get the orgasm. <laughs> Sorry to turn this into sex, but
0: Although, Well, I mean, you know, it's a very visceral part of our existence on and the personal side Yeah, and, it's uh, worth it to try But also I think that that is, is something that we strive for artistically We want those explosive moments We want those times when it's like everything is just in alignment
1: It's not prepared, it comes together in its magic It's just a magical moment
0: so then doing Sunday, you know, you'd written it off for so long. You finally get to do it, did it match whatever expectation you had of finally getting to do it?
1: When the light bulb hit, it was probably the third or fourth week into rehearsals, which is right, you know, right about when you're going to go on stage and start doing it in front of people. But when the light bulb hit, it was um indescribable. It was like, "Oh, got it." Because when i realized how beautiful that show was and how intricate and crazy and chaotic because you know the first act and then the second act is just totally different different beings is when i thought oh god i don't this is more sophisticated than my head i'm not smart enough for this the devil was creeping in but then i don't know it was just like literally one day it was like the sun came up and the music was playing in my head and it was just, it was glorious. And I was like, ah, it was it was almost like I had woken up into another being and it all just kind of slotted into place. And it was like, in just in, it, in one day, it just kind of everything aligned and I understood and it made sense. And I can't explain why that was. It just, everything made sense and I started to understand that what I was actually doing was right because I was questioning it all. And the fact that I was embracing my own reality was slotting into place with this role, with this job, with this, the story that was that we were all telling.
0: Those light bulb moments are an integral part of every actor's journey, whether they happen on stage or in the audition room. And in this week's bonus episode, Carmen talks about one particular audition for the 2008 revival of South Pacific at Lincoln Center. Now, in the audition room, she played the character of Nellie Forbush in a way that had big-time casting director Bernie Telsey shaking his head. Now, bonus episodes like these are only available to monthly supporters of Why I'll Never Make It, but I do wanna take a moment and give a big thank you to Brianna Anderson, who recently donated through PayPal and I couldn't be more grateful for her support. So if you'd like to help this podcast as well, then please consider either a one-time donation or, if you'd like access to the bonus episodes, then a monthly subscription by going to whyillnevermakeit.com or just look for the link in the show notes. We pick back up with our conversation about Sunday in the Park with George and its original book writer and director, James Lapine. Well, he wrote and directed a new musical that opened in December 2021 at Lincoln Center called Flying Over Sunset with Carmen as the lead actress. And she explains what it was like to work with this luminary figure of American theater.
1: Well, I'd had a little taste of, of being in a room with him because I had agreed to do, you remember the concert version of Sunday in the Park that they brought to New York with Jake Gyllenhaal and Ali Ashford? Gosh, I agreed to... Uh, do the concert version with them so i was in the room with james and and at some point pulled him aside and said you know what because of you and sunday the part with george this show i nearly quit the business i nearly had a nervous breakdown and quit the business and he said oh my god why would you do that he said we were pretty much high the entire time we wrote that And i said that's what i thought that's exactly what i thought because it's kind of crazy but it's perfect and um, he said, oh, yeah, we were totally high
0: the whole time. I think that's the explanation of how it goes from act one to act two.
1: Right, exactly. Yeah. It's just the chaos of it all. And then all of a sudden, it makes sense in this weird way. And I kept thinking, God, I wish I could just have a little joint and then watch this show, and it would all fall into place so perfectly. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so then, getting to be directed by him more formally for for a full production in Flying Over Sunset. Now he conceived that, wrote that, as well as directed it. So it was a very personal piece to him. And did I assume you got that in the way that he directed, in the way that he uh, approached the piece with mm-hmm. you?
1: Well, I was lucky enough to um, get in on the workshop or two before we. Well, it was we we workshopped it there at the Lincoln Center and. So I, I wasn't sure of the piece to begin with. I, w- I was sure I wanted to work with James Lapine, and but at the time in 2019, the uh, I wasn't sure. You know, there were so many other conversations that the world was having. I wasn't sure if this conversation was one I want. I needed to be a part of, but I wanted to work with James on something that was new and interesting and collaborative. Um, because I just was, you know, Sunday in the park was kind of a little bit life-changing for me. Um, and so I... I did the workshop and thought this is great. Still not sure, but I want to be a part of this. We'll see if it comes back around. It came back around. My my reps were like, "Don't know if this is the right time to do this because it's pilot season and yada yada." And we were just a circ- We were just about to hit 2020. And But I thought, there's something about it. I still need to be a part of this. I still want to see where this goes. So I did the second workshop, and then we started to put it on the stage for Lincoln Center, and 2020 March hit the pandemic.
0: Right, stopped everything. the day, the
1: day we were supposed to open for our first preview was the day that Broadway closed. And the storyline of Flying Over Sunset is about these people in these places in their lives where they're they're questioning their lives, kind of like where I was in, in my career, questioning what the f- am I doing? Um, who am I? How can I go back to my pain and bring that back to life and and merge it with this craft and make it authentic and not hurt myself in the process? You know, just, and that's, that's what these people were doing. It's about this story of these people trying to having to look at their past and deal with their pain and deciding to try LSD together and see how how they communicate and how they connect with each other. And it was all, it's all about connection. And then I realized after the pandemic that we needed to have, we really more than ever needed to have that conversation. So um, I was just so raring to go and ready to come back to that project and James Lapine and and with a new uh, frame of mind and a, and a clearer head as to what what I really wanted to bring to the table on that show.
0: How much did the show change from that 2020 when it would have opened mm-hmm. to then when it opened in December of 21?
1: I think for all the actors, we'd we'd have all been changed. We'd all ha- had evolved and we were all so so ready to come back to a room and and see each other's faces and be and be with each other and then understand how important that story was to tell. Just to be here in this room with you, Patrick, is that special? You know, instead of looking at you on a screen... There's something just so more interactive about that. And listening to the weed blower outside, you know, it's also interactive and connected in some crazy way.
0: Yeah, it's all about being very present. And it's interesting that you bring that up about the use of psychedelic drugs, LSD, in the show. And in a way, these characters were trying to be more present. They were trying to find something within themselves that maybe was lost or that or they locked. Did. Yeah. And locked. Yeah, and they didn't know how to get into it. Mm-hmm. And I know that us as actors, we can sometimes feel that way. As, as You've even mentioned it yourself yes. about feeling like, I don't know how to approach this. What, what am I doing? And then a light bulb. Moment, All of a sudden magical. it unlocks
1: and you can't even put your finger on or define it, but it just something unlocks, but you just have to stay in it and trust it. Whether it's the project or yourself or the director, or maybe a little bit of everything but just trust that we're, we're, we're on this planet to do something, right? To do something with our lives. And I believe, and I've, oh, I believe for a very long time that I, I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. At least I feel confident in that. I might not feel confident comp- with the project that I'm doing. I might not have all the answers, but that's where the special sauce is. Not having all the answers, but finding them together as you go along. And it might be the very last the last performance that another thing unlocks. And you're like, ah, there it is. But that's also the special – that's also um, what's exciting about being able to do a show more than once, you know, to do eight times a week. You find something every time you go out there if it's something that you're loving.
0: So with that in mind, I've certainly had those shows where mm-hmm. I kind of just had to white-knuckle it through. I just had to push. What I just show was to- that? Well, there was one, it it was a new show as well called Treasure Island. And, you know, I had my difficulties in remembering this line or or getting that musical cue and, and, you know, it was a new show. So things were changing and come opening weekend, I was still in a haze as far as, well, wait, when does that, how does that? So I just wasn't as prepared as an actor, but then also my emotional state was like, oh my gosh, can I do this? Can I? And the light bulb, unfortunately, didn't hit till a week into the run. And well, by, that
1: can also be about the project, you know, because they need to understand what's not hitting, what the actors. That's why we help them to create things, because maybe there's, you know, it's a story issue, you know.
0: Yeah. For you, whenever you've had those moments when the light bulb hasn't come on yet, what do you do to keep going?
1: Um, well, when you're in a collect, when you're in a, a thing that's beginning to move in some kind of direction, and and it's a new thing. I think you just have to be open. What I have learned (laughs) in these new processes is to trust that your own instincts and what you've learned, they've asked you to come and help them develop something. So you have to be open with them as to what's not working for you and can they help you get there. And there's a way of saying that, and there's a way of asking for that without it seeming like you're criticizing. But at the same time, if they're smart enough, they're going to understand that that's actually – she's not getting there because there's something here that I need to look at. And so it's – I think you've just got to trust yourself that every question that you're asking them is helping them too.
0: Yeah, it's interesting as you say that, thinking back to my own troubles with that show – I took the responsibility 100% on myself and, and yes, there were things that I could have done better or differently. It, it, yes. But at the same time, as you bring that up, it was like, cause the director did come to me and said, how can we help? And I didn't know what to say. And I think had I been more aware of what exactly was wrong, what exactly wasn't clicking, then I could have said, well, what if we did A or B and maybe try this? Yeah then, yeah, then it could have been that collaborative help. It's,
1: it's not always our job to be the problem solver. I take it upon myself to try and do things without egg on my face. So I've got to make it work somehow for myself so, so that I don't come out looking like an idiot. But it's not, we can't always solve the problem. It's not always our job to solve the problems. That's, you know, in the writer's hands also and the director's hands too captain the writer like it was such a wonderful collaborative experience to do bright star and watch a legend steve martin write things that you think oh everything's going to be genius no it's not he yes people see the finished product with him for the most part but to be in a room seeing what he was throwing at the at the wall and what was sticking and what wasn't was such an eye opener and such a an experience for me to understand that None of us popped out of the womb a genius. No, we just have to try, 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 and try again. and And if you're smart enough, like he is, he's he is a genius because he's smart enough to know what he needs to change because he's listening to the people that he's giving this this stuff to. And he would be there every single. He'd write another he'd write a line, knowing not sure if it was the right thing. And so anytime I would say the new line, he would creep up from some, I swear he was probably the ninja at some point in his life too, because you never, all of a sudden, where's Steve Martin? And then he would be like, literally nose to nose with you, like at your, you know, at your back, just listening to how I would say it. Or he would see a facial expression that I would pull that was like, oh, how do I say that? But I wouldn't literally say, Steve, this doesn't, I, what? What did you write? But, but he would be there to see any little face like. I think my face kind of tells it all <laughs> into what I am can understand and what I'm not understanding and how, how does that connect with this. And so he was always there, even when you didn't know he was there, he was there to ask because he knows as well, we've got to make it work. And if we don't understand, then there's something we've got to figure out together. Um, that's what makes him a genius. He's open to understanding that he needs a, a lot of other people around to to. To say, oh, that's funny. Oh, no, that's not. You know, because he learned on the spot with an audience as a stand-up. It's a constant learning curve. But Eddie Brickell as well was like churning out these amazing songs, these beautiful, heart-wrenching numbers, and then having to throw the baby away, like literally after having to throw the baby off the train to make it work. And, and Walter Bobby was there to captain both of them into how we needed to get there. It was a fascinating experience to go through, and it you know it took years.
0: Well, I mean, it certainly paid off for you with Bright Star. I mean, you got a bunch of nominations. You you yourself got a lot of critical acclaim for that. But both Flying Over Sunset and Bright Star didn't exactly meet up with expectations as far as their run, as far as finances and, and audiences connecting with it, and both closed early. Whenever a show closes or like that, do you blame the show? Do you blame yourself? Do you think, well, the audiences just didn't get it? What went through your head?
1: I think a lot of things. Um, timing. We came on the same year that Hamilton did. And um, there was that. We were also in the Court Theater, which is kind of, it's a sweet theater, but it's kind of off in the distance. It's not where the tourist, it's not a tourist attraction area. Yeah, it kind of is sitting in the back. I think that was a choice um, that went against the run. I also think, you know, not everyone that comes to New York and wants to see a, a musical would necessarily think bluegrass. That was another thing that was out outside of the box, but another reason why I I, I wanted to do it. You know, I wanted to sing that kind of music. It was more of what I grew up on, and uh, it was in my my special natural spot. And and I wanted to work with Steve Martin and Edie Raquel and Walter, you know, just the whole lineup of people. But yeah, there were some things going against us at that time, but mainly, I'd say, mainly the big one being Hamilton. <laughs> I mean, they kind of, the spotlight just kind of went da-dong, and everyone else kind of was hidden in the bushes.
0: Yeah. And with Flying Over Sunset, I think it's kind of the same thing. People don't come to see a Broadway show and think, oh, let's let's go see LSD. You know, people on LSD. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because it it was a very unique show for Broadway, but I assume it was a very unique show for you as a performer.
1: Uh, Very unique. And in that I grew up highly religious bible belting i never did drugs ever in my life until i became an adult (laughs) and then realized how awesome they were no but um no no don't do drugs people um but i i will say this my my parents had me when they were teenagers so they would play house at the end of the day at the school day down in the basement and look after me and they would have parties and one day my mom did catch me teething on a tablet of acid in the shag carpet so there you go. That was my first introduction to LSD at two years old. Um, so then it was it was totally fitting that I should at some point do a show about LSD.
0: <laughs> well, do you did your mother tell you what happened to you? Like what did a two-year-old Carmen do on acid?
1: Um, I probably had a really good time. <laughs> um, she took me to the emergency room and the doctor said, Well, she's too young to pump her stomach. So just keep an eye on her, you know, and She'll she'll just have a good time for, for maybe a few days. I don't know. <laughs> I was, anyway, that's my excuse. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah, and, and when you're two, you can't really verbalize what you're. So so who knows who what knows? you went through. That was just a very happy time <laughs> in your in your childhood. Oh my goodness, that's crazy. But um, but yeah, because Broadway, you know, flying over sunset. As we said, that was just your second Broadway show, and is. Broadway, the pinnacle for you, you know, in this kind of back and forth love, hate with musical theater, where did Broadway fit into all that?
1: Honestly, I know it is a bucket list for, you know, people that enjoy musical theater or theater of any sort, you know, it's a bucket list. I want to be on Broadway. Um, But it was never, I just wanted to do things that made me happy, that I enjoyed, that inspired me um and I learned pretty pretty quickly from other artists that would show up and you know and talking with other artists you know that not every gig was going to be inspiring and sometimes you just I always knew that that wasn't the necessarily the pinnacle of my life I would just wanted to do stuff that um I just wanted the gig I just wanted to enjoy the gig and if that meant doing Kitch Lounge Riot in Café de Paris at 11 o'clock till three in the morning with really awesome musicians, then that was living. I was living the life, you know, and that Broadway would come when it came, but I wasn't going to push it. I wasn't going to just say, oh, I'm just going to work as a waitress and save up to go to New York. I was I was just going to take life where it would take me. and And life took me to the UK for 14 years. And the West End picked me up and and I went on that ride and that was fun and I don't know. And I guess in the back of my head, I just thought broad will happen if it does. And if it doesn't, maybe that, that means I've got this great recording contract and I'll be touring with, with a band or, you know, maybe I'll get that really cool, fun acting job on a TV or a movie set. I just, just I just kind of kept it open for whatever. And maybe that's my lack of ambition. I don't know
0: well or much like being a jazz singer you were just open to the freedom of where this note was going to take you where that right. lyric was yeah. going yeah
1: like riding the wave
0: we all rode a wave of the pandemic and i think for many artists it was you know it certainly stopped what we wanted to be doing but also it was a chance for us to stop think realize things about ourselves as people as artists and our third story you wanted to share the realization that you came to when it came to the pandemic and you had been writing your own music for a while but the pandemic made you realize that no this i'm really good at this i'm a legit writer this is what i can do so it made you think of yourself or take yourself more seriously in that respect what was it that caused that light bulb moment
1: I don't mean to sound, I'm not trying to make the pandemic trivial, but with the pandemic came a so much death and so much tragedy and loss of work and just so much loss. But, you know, with every glass half empty, you have to see the glass half full at some point. Otherwise, what's the point at all? And so with that in mind, I started to realize what a gift it was to have a moment to not have the constant pressure of having to of being employed not have the constant pressure of having to create having to make something all the time having a moment to just sit back and be quiet and really think about what we're doing why we're here and what what does that bird outside what is that bird telling me it was so nice to have the quiet and so nice to hear my own inner thoughts you know, you don't need drugs. You don't need LSD to really hear that inner voice sometimes. You sometimes just need the quiet. And that's, I think, what the pandemic gave a lot of us, if we allowed that.
0: Yeah, because I know for myself, that's something that I've had to struggle with, because I tend to want to escape that voice, because it, it can be a negative voice. It can be something that reminds me of that downtime, and why didn't you do that, and what happened there, and it, it, all the what-ifs in my life. Does your voice go there or or does it tend to as you as you said, open you up to more realizations
1: it It goes there yeah, I the my the inner voice goes back to pains in my life, my upbringing, my um, you know, choices that people around me made, and then therefore the choices that I made, and all of it I'm thankful for because I'm happy, you know the things that were inspiring me were those the dark those, the darkness the darkness inspired me to write to to sing about the light and the dark and and i think that's a perfect balance and the pandemic brought me back to the darkness of what it is like to be isolated what it is like to not be able to contact your friends or to or to have the fear of of holding someone or hugging someone Um, being in a room with another person. I never thought I would miss that as much as I did because I do do enjoy my... I I spent a lot of time by myself as a young, young kid until my mom remarried and then my life kind of exploded in that way. But I spent a lot of time by myself and and I enjoy that time. I've always... I've never felt uncomfortable by myself because my mind, you know is always, there's always music in, in my head constantly. It's finding the lyrics to go with the music that is my challenge. But this pandemic just opened up space to express myself in a different way. And I can't really explain that, but just having the quiet and knowing that not everything has to be filled with another word. You need the space. And writing songs is about, not just about a bunch of lyrics, it's about a feeling, it's about a vibe, it's about a, mo- a, a mood or a, or a color.
0: Again, you're not bound to what's just on the page, because now you're creating the page. Yeah. And you're able to take a story or go in a particular direction or theme or subject, mm-hmm. you know, and it's really up to you as far as where the piece goes. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Are there topics then? Are there things about you that are difficult to write? Or maybe I don't want to go there.
1: Oh, no. I, you can go anywhere. Um, I've, I'm okay to go anywhere now because it's all part of the life experience. And therefore, if you can put it, you know, some, some artist may be able to, you know, throw it on a canvas, all of it, and whether you see it or not is up to you. So that's how I'm approaching the songs my my own writing, my own ability to write stories I can know what I'm singing about that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to get the full picture of, of what I'm you know and that's the abstract of it all and that's what I'm what I'm trying to encapsulate now that I'm still going to throw it all out there it's whether you see it or hear it or not
0: yeah, I think what you say is so true. I, I know back in my high school, college days, I got into poetry. That was, I wasn't a songwriter, but I could do like basically the lyrics, the poetry. And I was dealing, a lot of it was helping me deal with my own sexualities as I was kind of figuring that out at the time. And even though it was my own writing, I wasn't going to share it with anyone. I was still a bit... Abstract about it. I was still like, instead of just talking about, well, I'm trying to decide, I'm sexual, what what do I want to? I I would talk about the fork in the road and which path do I choose. And you know, the, you know, this path looks like this, and I would describe that path. This path looks like that and describe the trees or the ground in a very abstract way. But in in my own mind, I knew what each of those paths meant. And with writing, that's what we can do. We can tell a story that the audience is going to be like, oh, that's interesting. Whereas you're like going through crap, trying to get that story out.
1: Well, that's what I'm trying to do is, is going from the abstract now, because, you know, you go through these elevations of, of your own craft of, of being literal and then, okay, how do I go about it? you know, not being so literal and coming, going about it more abstractly. And so that's, that's, that's the excitement about writing is having all, you know, coming, trying to come at it from these, all these different angles and still being able to express everything and I'm just—I've just gotten so excited. It's just—it's enlightened me again with the whole being the whole pandemic and being quiet, and always being the vehicle for someone else's story, and also being able to tell your story through their story. That's what I've enjoyed through the process of being, you know, their vehicle. But now I realize I'm not scared to tell my own story. I don't need to protect anybody else anymore. That's where I'm at at this point in my life.
0: I think that's something that I've had to, it's taken me a while to learn as well, in that I've played characters, you know, ranging from the villain to the leading man, to the love interest, you know, all these different, and I've put on that character. And it's taken me a while to realize how much of me needs to be in those characters too. Because for the longest time, it was just a chance for me to not be myself, for me to be this other person and be this other life that I wasn't living. But it's only once I started and, and, and I remember this happened in college once. We were doing a play called To Jillian on Her 37th Birthday. I don't know if you've heard of the play. Wow,
1: that's a title.
0: Right? And it's about Jillian who died, and it's her 37th birthday. And so it's, it's chronicling the husband's journey through that death and coming to terms with it. And I I played the role, you know. But then there was the one night, and it, it was interesting. One of my professors was there. And it, it comes down to the pivotal moment where he he finally— comes to term with it. He finally is not pretending anymore. He's, he's, he's not just, you know, putting on a good face. And because in college, you know, you just do the one week run. So like, uh, I think it's like Monday through Sunday or something like that. And it was the Thursday night performance. And it was the first time I'd ever actually cried on stage. It wasn't me just, to, I was like in it and I could barely get the words out.
1: Isn't that just a special, it, it's, yeah.
0: just- I mean, I mean, I mean. Even now, like that was 20 odd years ago, and I still remember that night. I remember that feeling. I remember, ah, oh, and I just was like in it. And so, I think it is important that uh, that we that we recognize how much this art form, as wonderful it is to to be alphabet, to be this green thing that that sings beautiful songs. There's still a bit of us that has to come out.
1: That's that's the, probably the biggest thing I've learned through this whole career process and hope to continue to embrace is myself and my own pain. Like, I don't need to put it to the side anymore and pretend to be somebody else. I have to, to become the the better artist, to elevate anyone else's work. I have to be unafraid to embrace my stories.
0: It's a great place to be, and I think it's something that we all strive for. Because would you say that that has become your definition of success, really making it?
1: Uh, My definition of success, making it, is the freedom. Oh, God. Living in the moment. Yeah, absolutely. Embracing your own
0: truth. Whether or not anyone else sees it as true. Whether or not anyone else likes it, takes to it.
1: Yeah, and not caring. Yeah,
0: (laughs) yeah. I think that that's a... It's a vulnerable place to be, but it's one of the more powerful stances we can take in our life yeah. to, to recognize that I'm enough for who I am and what I, I bring enough. to this life.
1: Own it. Own your own story.
0: This has been such a joy to oh, talk to you so and, and hear your stories. Oh, Thank oh, you so God. much for for sharing and opening up with us.
1: It's been fun. Thank you, Patrick.
0: Thank you so much for joining Carmen and me today, but remember, the conversation continues not only with that audition story bonus episode, but also with the final five questions on the Win Me blog. You'll find a link to that in the show notes or by going to com. This week's listener feedback comes from Sharla, who reached out to me on Instagram and said, just wanted to pop in and tell you how much I enjoy your podcast. I don't have any clue about the inside of the acting world, but I do enjoy a good interview, and you are great at it. (laughs) Well, thank you very much, Sharla. I really appreciate you listening and enjoying this behind-the-scenes look at the theater world. And I hope you're learning something in the process. You, too, can follow this podcast on Twitter and Instagram at WinMePodcast. Well, I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, in charge of writing, editing, and producing this podcast. Background music is by John Bartman and Blue Dot Sessions. Why I'll Never Make It is a Win Me Media production, and it is a part of the Helium Radio Network and a member of the Broadway Makers Alliance. Join me next time as we talk more about Why I'll Never Make It.